Good physics new year, everyone. Okay, I know that's a little bit different. And I'm I'm hopeful by the time this episode comes out, it's at least still January, and that this message, this happy new year message is relevant. Uh, but if not, and if you're listening years in the future anyway, then maybe that doesn't matter. Well, for me right now, I'm in the, well, I wouldn't call it the off season. I'm, I'm in winter break. Uh, Plymouth State University begins up again in about a week and a half for me. So I'm in the, the throes of class planning for the spring semester. And having this little bit of time is giving me way too much time in a way to think about how I might do things differently. The modeling instruction course went so well for me for my university physics class, the calculus-based class. For the for the algebra-based physics class, I wasn't really all that happy with the way things went in physics one. So in physics two, I'm thinking of mixing things up a bit. I, I may do a little bit of the modeling scenario, but I'm considering doing eight weeks of a special project where students will work together in small teams to come up with uh, almost some kind of small research uh, project that they're going to look into where they have to, to dig into some physics topics themselves, learn those pieces themselves, and do some some teaching presentations to the class about those, and then to have some kind of measurement activity that they do. So I'm thinking about doing that. And for my general education astronomy course, I'm thinking about doing ungrading. I've had some preliminary conversations with my Center for Teaching and Learning here, our open collab uh, at PSU here. And I'm really excited about the, the possibility of ungrading in this astronomy course. I've never done that before. I haven't read all the books yet. I know just enough that I could give it a try and gee, we'll see how it goes. So you may hear some updates throughout uh, my semester about that. But happy new year. Uh, if you teach high school, you've already been back since, I guess, January 2nd, maybe January 3rd. If you're teaching college, you might be back as you're listening to this, or, or maybe you're, you're going to be returning shortly. I wish everybody excellent 2023, the, the second half of our academic year. And speaking of making modifications to our courses, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Universal design for learning. Now, this is something that... I had heard of, but I was only beginning to get acquainted with it uh, back in episode 23 for me. I did uh, a little roundup of articles from the journal The Physics Teacher from May 2021, and there was an article called Using Universal Design for Learning to Support Students with Disabilities in a Scale-Up Physics Course. Well, today I'm going to be looking at this topic again, but it's going to be the, the content of the entire episode. So there is a paper that came out in The Physics Teacher, the November 2022, a paper called Course Modifications to Promote Student Mental Health and Move Toward Universal Design for Learning. And this one was absolutely put on my radar by my, my colleague from when I was back at Hamilton College, Kristen Burson, and she was excited to share this article with me. And I was excited to say, yes, we should absolutely talk about that on the podcast. So... Now we're both at new institutions, but still in communication, and I was so happy to have a chance to speak with her and uh, one of the authors she wrote the paper with, Melissa eblin -Zayas. Today is an opportunity for you to hear more about universal design for learning and what some of the things are that you could do in your classroom, some of the modifications that you can make to not try to change the whole class all, all at once, but what are some pieces that you could begin to introduce into the course as we do sort of our steady march to, to improving our courses, to really paying attention to student well-being and mental health. All right, let's take a listen to this interview after, of course, a little bit of theme music. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. So today I'm speaking with Melissa eblin and Kristen Burson, who, along with Danielle McDermott, wrote a paper titled Course Modifications to Promote Student Mental Health and Move Toward Universal Design for Learning. Melissa is a professor of physics at Carleton College. Kristen is an associate professor of physics at Grinnell College. Their paper appeared in the November 2022 issue of The Physics Teacher, and you can find a link to the paper in the podcast show notes. So hello, Melissa and Kristen. Welcome to Physics Alive, and thank you for speaking with me today. Hi, Brad. Great to be here. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having us. A longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> oh, oh, it melts my heart. <laughs> All right. So I want to start off just right away by characterizing our main topic of the day. What is universal design for learning or UDL? How was it implemented? If And if you know some of the history of UDL, I'm also interested to learn a little bit more about its origin. Uh, so I'll go ahead and jump in. Um, universal Design for Learning is a framework that is based on learning science research that aims to support the development of flexible learning environments that are inclusive of and accessible to all learners. Um, and so it, for, it focuses on encouraging instructors to think about how they might offer multiple means of engagement with a course as a way to encourage motivation and interest, um, thinking about multiple means of representation of information to help students acquire you know, content, and encourages instructors to think about multiple means of action and expression so that students have different ways to demonstrate the knowledge that they have acquired through through a course. And this approach or this framework originally actually grew out of work of educational researchers who came together in the early 1980s when personal computers were sort of becoming more popular because this group of educational researchers were beginning to consider how technology might provide better experiences for students with disabilities. And so these folks who came together um, created something called the Center for Applied Special Technologies, um, which goes by the acronym CAST. And CAST as an organization still exists and has sort of evolved to develop this uh, well um, the sort of more well-designed and comprehensive framework that is broader than just thinking about technologies for students with disabilities to thinking about broadly what are the learning environments that that we design and how can they be more accessible to, to all students. Maybe I'll just add here that within each of those categories, this engagement category, representation, action, and expression, this framework has a set of checkpoints. And so uh, one thing that I like about this framework is that it really is quite modular. And so you can see some sort of spe specific activities that you can do to increase engagement, increase representation, increase um, action and expression. Yeah, I, I I keep seeing mention of this idea that there's 31 checkpoints. And on one hand, that can almost sound like, wow, that's that's a lot. You know, if we if we showed if we showed a rubric to our students that had, you know, 31 checkpoints that that they had to meet, they might they might sort of glaze over. And um, you know, what, what one of the things that I, I noticed you actually mentioned in your paper is that it's like you don't have to it, it's like it can be overwhelming to try to meet everything all at once. And uh, that it's like, let's let's just take some pieces of this, which is exactly what what you end up doing in your paper. You you focus in on, on one of those, which I really appreciate that. I was going to say, I think one of the things as an as a teacher, there is always more you can be thinking about and more you can be doing, right? And and I think one of the things, that's one of the things that makes teaching exciting because you can always be trying new things, but it can feel overwhelming. And, and so I, I always encourage folks to, you know, this time when you're going through a course, make one or two changes, right? And see how they go, learn from it. And then next time around, you can make one or two more changes because, we have to not only think about what's best for our students, but we also have to think about what keeps teaching sustainable for us. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to continually do all the things in all aspects of your course, that can be a little uh, overwhelming as an instructor to make it sustainable. So I'd love to step back briefly and learn a little bit more about how each of you came to adopting UDL guidelines in your courses. What is important to you when you're teaching and what did you feel was either missing or maybe not what you wanted to accomplish in your teaching? So I'll start with this one. I I think in my courses, I was 
really seeing students with um, some different needs and interests. And uh, some of these needs would come up on individual student, you know, an individual one by one basis. And simultaneously was seeing on my campus uh, national trends, right, about uh, student mental health uh, and the needs around student mental health and seeing some of the work of our accommodations office. And so I was really fascinated by this idea of universal design, where you're really thinking about those elements as you design your course um, and you can sort of bake in things that support those students and their needs um, in a way that doesn't necessarily require the student to be proactive in asking for that particular uh, learning need. And so I was really, really fascinated by that and um, by this idea of uh, really trying to uh, think about a course and design that in advance. And I think uh, the other uh, piece that I really like about that is it allows me to be more thoughtful, right? The framework is, is really helpful in being thoughtful about how those um, pieces are incorporated in a structural sense and sort of less about, you know, needing to be nimble uh, and accommodating sort of more of accommodations uh, framework on on the fly. Um, so I think it just lowers the barrier a lot for for students to be able to to be able to learn effectively and also uh, makes it easier for me in the moment when I have these structures in place already at the beginning of the semester in, instead of well in addition to I should say uh, addressing individual students student needs as they arise. Yeah, and I, I think what got me interested in uh, UDL is very similar to, to what you heard from Kristen. I did serve from 2016 to 2020. I was serving as the director of the Learning and Teaching Center at Carleton. And so in that role, I had quite a few conversations with staff members who were in the Office of Accessibility Resources Supporting Students with Disabilities. And, and we also have an Office of Health Promotion uh, at Carleton, which is focused on supporting student well-being. Um, and so, you know, in talking with staff members who were, you know, focused on these particular aspects of, of student engagement with the campus, I was seeing and hearing from them some of the things that I had saw in, seen in my own courses. So for example, as a faculty member, you know, certainly I get the accommodations notices from the Office of Accessibility Resources. But one of the things that I was hearing from staff there is that there are some students who come from backgrounds where they may actually not have a formal disability accommodation or diagnosis um, because of the particular circumstances that they are coming from. And so, you know, if you proactively design your course so that it is trying to take into account the diversity of experiences and backgrounds that students have, right, then you aren't relying on making individual modifications for students who have been able to get go through the formal accommodation process, right? You're proactively baking that in. And, and so that is something that I particularly appreciated about this universal design for learning um, is, is it allows me to think ahead proactively and not have to only react when particular students arrive with particular accommodations requests. The other thing that I, really like about this universal design for learning uh, element is is the focus on flexibility right and and so one of the things that we that i heard when i was talking with folks from the office of health promotion is is just about the rising stress levels that students have and so finding ways to introduce more flexibility so that when students need to reduce stress a little bit there are ways to to do that um and some of those things i hadn't i really hadn't even thought about how i might be contributing to some of the stresses that were students were were seeing and so providing options so that students could engage differently at different times in the course seemed like it was a smart a smart choice. And if I could just add one piece on the sort of piggybacking on your comment on flexibility, 
one piece that I like about it is it helps me think about ways to introduce flexibility that don't add significantly to my individual workload. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, especially Melissa, as you're talking about what does it mean to have sustainability in our teaching uh, long-term and to also provide students with the flexibility uh, that they need for those really stressful points in the semester. I think having this framework and this design uh, allows me to do that in ways that are also sustainable for me as an educator. Yeah, one of the things I've definitely appreciated in reading about universal design for, for learning is many of these things that we are maybe providing accommodations for for certain students are just they're good for everybody. That that was a comment that, that I've seen about UDL that, that really jumps out at me. It's like, these are these are just things that are good for everybody. So not only are we meeting some of those accommodations that that may have been coming coming to us to try to meet, um, but that or just for those students, but that is, it's good for many students. And I feel like I'm beginning to see the number of students needing accommodations rising each year. So, you know, this is something definitely speaking to sort of maybe a mental health crisis that we are are seeing sort of blowing up in at the very least our country, if not other countries, for both students and for everybody, everybody. Uh, the, the, the pandemic certainly didn't help matters. Um, I think it was already there. And and then now let's just like layer this elephant on top of, of everything else too. So uh, it, it's certainly something to really be be thinking about now. I'm just going to, I'm going to launch right into, I was, I was going to put this question at the end, but I, I feel like many people, there's going to be like this, there's just going to be this part of us, this devil's advocate part of us that is saying, yeah, but that's not how the world is. Yeah, but this is how education has been forever. So why, why are we, why are we going to do this? I mean, if they're going to get out of college and maybe things haven't changed, hopefully they will be changing everywhere in all the, in all of workplaces, but you know, what, what do you, how, how do you respond to, to that sort of statement? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that there are lots of folks who, I, I think this is partially a change in how we think about teaching. I think it used to really be that the focus on teaching was mostly focused on content, right? And I think now the focus on teaching and learning in 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 my view is is part about is not just the content but it's how do we interact with each other in the process of collectively building our understanding of a topic <laughs> and and the classroom that is what the classroom is it's not just about delivery and mastery of content but how do we help students engage in a community where everyone is contributing to building their understanding? Because I think that actually is what happens more in the workplace, right? A workplace is often people working together as a team to accomplish mm -hmm. some goal. And so to the extent that in structuring the environment, we try to structure the environment such that everyone can be their best selves in trying to contribute to this community and enhancing both their, un their own understanding and also helping others build up their understanding. I, I feel that that's what many workplaces actually are trying to do to do, right? It's it's trying to get folks to work together as a team towards a goal. And I feel like in order for a team to be able to, to work together, we need to allow everyone to bring their best selves and universal design for learning um, should allow that to happen a little bit. And and so I guess I guess that's that's how I think about it. And so for the critics who say, well, the real world isn't like this, I mean, the real world is not being able to, you know, answer so many multiple choice questions within <laughs> yeah. a 60 minute time frame or or whatever. So I, I think there's many things that we do that uh, are not actually necessarily helping students in ways that that will you know, lead to the world. And I do feel like creating a classroom environment where people recognize that they're part of a community and contributing to that community that's very much like what we want students to be able to do when they go out in the workplace and work in, in teams. I agree with that. And just to give you a sense, let me 
read a few of these checkpoints because I think a lot of these skills are the skills that you want in the, the real world, right? It's, it's turns out there's not a checkpoint that says have low standards, right? That's not what the checkpoint <laughs> right? But instead there are things like guide appropriate goal setting, uh, support planning and strategy development, uh, promote expectations and beliefs that optimize motivation. And so when you look at the types of things that you'd want in a quote, real world uh, a job or, or setting, uh, I imagine that you want motivated employees, right? And uh, people who are able to optimize um, motivation, uh, people who are able to uh, have that goal setting, uh, people who are able to communicate in uh, multiple ways, right? And so I think a lot of the pieces uh, in, in UDL are aligned with that goal, not, not at odds. Those are excellent responses. And one of the things that I, I've, I've been thinking about with this is that even, even if a workplace, for instance, wouldn't have, let's say, flexibility and deadlines, it's like, nope, you got to get something done at a certain time. Or it's like, nope, you got to do it this way. Even even if something like that exists, I, I love the idea of, it's like, we have to start somewhere if we're going to make changes in our culture. So if we can begin to make these changes at the university level for our students, and then those students go out and and move into the, the working world, and they remember these things they've seen here, and they advocate for that. It's like, that's that's where this this ball is is rolling in a good direction. So I like what's happening here, and let's let's talk about some of these. Let's talk about some of these examples. So, your paper describes specific course modifications that can help educators move toward universal design for learning. So I appreciate that that you said in sort of the introduction that overhauling a course to meet all thirty-one UDL checkpoints would be overwhelming. Rather, making modest modifications over time allows for continual movement toward courses that are more accessible and support student mental health. Uh, your paper describes three modifications that fall within the third UDL guiding principle, which is providing multiple means of engagement. So what made you focus on this particular principle? The thinking about multiple means of engagement is really focused on how can we um, support student motivation and interest. And so there's a lot in, in that that is thinking about promoting reflection, promoting community, which at least for me, I would say, although I had always thought of these elements as being an important part of a course, I maybe hadn't been as intentional in my design of those affective elements of, of the course as I had been in my design of, for example, providing students with multiple different representations of a situation, right? And, and so I really liked the uh, UDL structure in terms of helping me concretely think through some of these elements with regards to what can I do to increase student interest and student motivation and help students see um, and engage with the community of the course um, and having something very concrete as I'm thinking about that as opposed to just saying, yeah, I want students to be motivated and yes, I want students to, to work together, right? Um, and, and the UDL framework helped me be much more intentional about that element of my class where I had not been as intentional about that element of my class previously. I feel like for me, the, the answer is almost from the opposite uh, direction, that this was an element that I was really trying to be intentional about. At the time that I uh, was learning more about the UDL framework, I was also teaching a first-year course in physics. And when I think about what I want for first-year students, I want us to learn the content of mechanics, uh, but I also want those students to uh, develop a connectedness with the department. Uh, there's a lot of pieces that I'm doing in terms of helping students develop the types of student skills that will help them be successful long-term in college and do that high school to college transition piece in terms of what it means to be a mature learner. Uh, there's a lot of um, pieces uh, surrounding 
uh, community and motivation for the subject. And I was really thinking a lot too about belongingness and how do I create an environment that supports belongingness for, for women, for students of color, for um, students who we haven't uh, traditionally maybe seen as many of in physics as we would like. And so at the when I then started learning about the UDL framework, the this category of engagement intersected with so many of the goals that I had for that um, first year course that were sitting alongside the content goals that I had for the course. And so I was really drawn to that as some concrete ways to make progress and to do that in a way that was intentional and designed into the course. Okay, great. Thanks for sharing some of your kind of thoughts of how you got started with this. Let's go through each one of the three modifications that you wrote about. I'd like to learn what motivates each one, what some examples of that modification look like, and what your individual experiences have been with that modification in the classroom. Modification one, design the social aspects of active learning activities to reduce anxiety. How do we do that design? How do we design these social aspects? What does that mean? Okay, so I'll I'll go ahead and, and start with that one. Um, I think I had, you know, for as long as I've been teaching, I've always been on the active learning bandwagon, right? So so you know, you never had to you never had to sort of convince me that having students sort of work in small groups or do think pair share activities or anything like that, you know, I, I saw that as something that worked really well. And, and I've always incorporated that in my teaching. Um, but one of the things that I became aware of is that for some students, that social aspect is actually anxiety inducing, right? Um, and, and it can be anxiety inducing sometimes um, just because students are suffering from anxiety in general. It can be that students who are suffering from depression uh, can have trouble engaging uh, that that kind of situation. And so whereas previously I, I would have students sort of come in and I'd sort of mix up groups all the time, I, I realized that actually that does not help students who are, who are students who are uncertain about the social elements of a, of a class, right? And in particular, Caitlin Cooper at Arizona State University, who's in biology education, has done a lot of research on the social dynamics of, of systems. And so one of the things that has changed is I used to feel like if I want to have students build community, I want students to mix up and work with as many different people in a class as possible. And one of the things that that is a recommendation uh, is to actually have students work with the same small group for a period of time such that they can develop some uh, group norms about how they're going to interact with each other. They can get comfortable interacting with each other. And then for those students for whom the social interactions are, are hard, they don't have to continually introduce themselves to new people. And, and so one of the things that I've, I've started doing is I, I have students um, tell me some information about before the course even starts on a pre-course questionnaire, some information about how they prefer to work in groups, right? Like, are they a person who likes to step forward? Are they a person who tends to, to sit back? I, I asked them a little bit about uh, sort of timing of how they like to do work in a course. Um, and, and then I intentionally form groups um, and I ask students in class on the first or second day of class to meet with their group, to introduce themselves to each other. And I have some questions that I ask them about, how are you going to manage the fact that some people might wanna move faster and some people might wanna move slower through things that you're you're working through and how might you manage um, somebody, some people are more comfortable talking up and some people are not as comfortable talking up. And I have them you know, actually spend the class time articulating some rules for themselves about how they're going to interact. Um, and then they know that they're going to keep interacting with those same group of folks for an extended period of time. And so they can really get to know each other, get to know how they can interact with each other. Um, and I actually have them throughout that period also reflect occasionally on 
how the group work is going, how other people in the group are helping their learning, um, and being really intentional, intentional about making that visible to students and having them reflect on that. So that's one example of how I've gone from, you know, just sort of always constantly mixing up students in my course to actually having them really get to know a small group, set some standards for how they're going to work together, and then and then really start to develop a, a sense that they're that they're working collaboratively as a as a team. So I'll add to that, like like Melissa, I think since I started teaching, I really have been bought into the idea of group work as a learning tool. And uh, some of the things that Melissa is talking about are, are practices that I've come to uh, more recently where like really thinking about how do we coach students in becoming effective members of, of, uh, of a group uh, in group work and uh, effective members of a team. And I think there's uh, several places in physics where this uh, comes out, not just in the classroom, but especially in the laboratory setting, right? Who's, who are, who's doing what roles um, in the laboratory setting? How are you uh, working with your partner? Um, I think this is a, a space where sometimes we see microaggressions arise. Um, and so uh, how are we coaching students and helping students deal with those things? And when I, um, I think I've become increasingly interested in developing that coaching skill, if you will, and that coaching structure that Melissa describes, because when I think about my own experiences as a professional physicist, this is a core skill that I use as a professional physicist, right? That um, if you look at my papers, uh, there are on average something like seven authors, right? So those are seven people that I'm working with as an experimental uh, condensed matter physicist. And so the reality is that a lot of the, the work that I do as a, a researcher is really in these collaborative contexts and so I, I've increasingly come to the, you know, to the thinking for myself that um, building that collaborative skill uh, and being intentional about the ways that we're helping students build that collaborative skill is, uh, is really an important part of our learning objectives. Yeah, as, as both of you have expressed, I've um, also been an advocate of, of group work for, for active and engaged learning. And, and since I started teaching in 2010, it's pretty much always been group work. And I've even had in the modeling instruction that I've done and having a studio setting where students are in basically lab groups all of the time. And I think one of the things that this is really bringing out to me is being more intentional, not just having these groups, but, but helping, helping students with those dynamics and setting them up to be as successful as possible. And just very anecdotally for, for me, I found that um, two years ago at Hamilton college, as we were coming back in person, um, from being away from that that first semester when the pandemic started, we had to have fewer students in classes. So I purposely broke them up into groups, um, into small groups. I only had one half of my class come in one day, another half would come in another day. I I set I had them help me set the groups, and I feel like that was one of the most amazing semesters I've I've had. They worked together so remarkably well. And then the following year, we went back into the big lecture hall and I just let them sit next to each other and we weren't intentional about groups at all. And it just went, I felt like it was a dud of uh, of a year. And it's like, wow, the those intentional groups that we had set and letting them work together throughout the semester and um, helping, you know, a few students came with me to sort of address some of the group dynamics. Uh, it just worked. It just worked so well. So it, it's reminding me again about being intentional about group setting, um, even just in the way that we we form groups and then thinking about that uh, is, is such an important piece. So the second modification, increase mastery oriented feedback and assessments. Uh, so I'll start with this one. The Some of the I have to say some of the ideas in this section on mastery-oriented feedback came from our uh, co-author, Danielle McDermott, and she presents this uh, system from uh, Thomas Moore, where students turn in an initial copy of their homework and then do homework corrections. And so this is a system that I had not used before, uh, but in the process of working with um, Danielle and Melissa on this paper, I thought, well, that's, that's a really cool idea, and I'm going to try it. And so I actually used this system, this uh, 
past semester. And the so the way it works is that uh, students, you assign your normal homework set, students do the homework, I grade it based on some, you know, a set of uh, criteria, not primarily on correctness, um, but more on problem solving process. Uh, do you have uh, units? Have you um, drawn a diagram? So things like things that are good problem solving process in, in physics. Uh, can Have you communicated your sort of big physics ideas as you um, present a solution to this problem? And then uh, students get access to the homework solutions and they actually go through and correct their own homework in a different color. Uh, and so um, in the in the grading that I end up seeing both the original and the solution and the corrected version together. And I asked students to identify what was uh, challenging for them, like why, what, what needed correction and why, what was um, the mistake uh, that you made or the misconception that you had. And uh, students had really positive feedback on this because they basically said, look, I never look at the um, grades that my professor gives me on the homework. I just, I mean, I just look at the number, but I don't actually look at the feedback. And um, because students were engaging in that feedback process for themselves, they were um, internalizing sort of their own feedback, right? Um, but they were also uh, reviewing those problem solving processes and uh, being able to identify the barriers for them in the, in the problem solving uh, process, whether those were mathematical issues or conceptual issues, um, and uh, having to articulate that. And so part of what I would, we did this, uh, again, this was an idea I got from Danielle, a norming session at the beginning, where we looked at three examples of a correction. And one correction basically, you know, crossed out a wrong answer and put the right number. And uh, another correction gave a very detailed narrative um, uh, response, if you will, of like what, what went wrong in the process and why. And uh, maybe another correction just uh, put a copy of the solution in uh, and that correction uh, got no points, right? But I asked students to then think about like, what is a good homework correction and what does it look like to do a good homework mm. correction? And I think that was really productive in helping students understand what I was looking for um, in that process. And I will say, I use something, I use a different process, but I think one of the things that I have changed is if indeed homework is meant to be practice, right? You don't expect practice to be perfect. And so, whereas previously I would look at the homework that was turned in and grade it, um, now I treat it in much the same way as my writing colleagues treat homework, right? In terms of students turn in a first draft, right? And then, um, on that first draft, they they just get um, sort of feedback of you're on the right track with the physics, or you know the you end up at the right answer, but I can't follow what you're doing or your explanation, or you know just a, a few sort of very general uh, general feedback for the problems that they've done on the homework. And then as you would on a draft, they can revise and resubmit, and then that revise and resubmit is actually what gets gets graded, right? So so that's the that's practicing sort of viewing homework as practice and then they can really um you know go ahead. And I've I've moved away from um the other thing I'll say is I've moved away from grading by lots of points, right? And so problem, you know, for these problems where it really is practice, right? It's like needs work good or excellent, right? So needs work means there's some things you're still really missing, right? Good means, okay, you, you're mostly on the right track, but maybe there's a few things that are missing. And excellent means, okay, you've shown you really understand this, right? And and that also, once again, to the point of saving me time, right? If I'm viewing this as practice, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that giving students lots of, you know, points for this, that, and the other thing really helps promote, okay, am I understanding this and how might I need to revisit it? Um, and, and so I've, I've found that that, you know, turning in homework once and then being able to revise and resubmit it is, is really helpful. Yeah, I, I like this focusing on, it's really focusing on the, the process is what I'm sort of hearing both of you talking about here. And that, 
in fact, maybe our grading scheme, you know, as, as Kristen, you were talking about, you know, giving examples of this is what good uh, revision would look like, that we could have it that a, a lot of the grading for homework really is just about what is the initial effort you put into it? And then what does that revision effort look like? And if you are doing good work there, that will hopefully translate to you doing well on the exams and that that it's that effort. It's that what you put into it is what we're really actually going to grade on the homework. And that's, it's a piece I'm starting to think about a little bit for, I'm for my general education astronomy class. I'm, I'm thinking about ungrading a little bit. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, talk about a place where it's going to be all about feedback and, and getting, hoping to get the best effort out of students. You know, these are the sorts of pieces I'm starting to think about for that and how like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to grade them, but they need to show me some evidence like that, that evidence of what their performance in the class was, it's like, what was the effort they put into it? And what does good effort look like? And, and teach them what that looks like. And I think the other thing about this is it requires more sustained engagement from students than, you know, if they do, you know, a homework assignment and they turn it in and they're done with it, they, they sort of often think like, okay, I can wash my hands of those concepts, <laughs> right? Or I, I need to remember the concepts that are going to be relevant for the next set, you know, for the next unit. Um, but if it, you know, with with my revision process, the the working on the homework lasts a little bit longer, right? And so then they have to engage with the topics for a longer period of time, which I found is actually helpful. Okay, so moving to the third modification, so providing students with more choice for course assignment. So I think I have uh, several examples where I, I provide students choice. In, you know, lab classes, for example, I really like to provide students um, the opportunity to choose, you know, sort of what are they going to explore? And, and that might take a lot of different uh, forms depending upon what the level of the lab class is, right? So in an intro class, I might give students the example of like, okay, you are working for a company that makes spring balances. You have to um, you know, provide some update on, you know, how you might want to change the design of um, these spring balances, what would be the question you would want to explore? And what would you report to your supervisor, right? So I, I, I've given them, I want them to explore something about springs, but they can make the choices about what question they want to explore, and then how they're going to explore it. Um, you know, in the advanced lab course that I teach, um, that really is about students, you know, looking at the literature in like the American Journal of Physics or something like that and actually proposing, you know, a project that they want to do based on what's out there, um, based on, on you know, sort of what their interests are. So so those are examples um, of of some of the choices I provide students. Um, but some of the some of the other places you can provide choices when I have students, I often have uh, one or two classes every week that might be entirely in-class small group problem solving. And I will there give students quite a large array of problems and they can then choose as a group which problems they want to do. Um, and they can make that choice um, either based on the context of what the problem is asking. So for example, if I'm teaching, you know, the, the intro physics for pre-med students, there may be some particular examples that have medical applications that they want to dive a little bit deeper into. Um, but other times, um, you know, these problems might just be review of different topics. And if a group is feeling like, okay, we aren't really clear on this particular topic, let's do additional practice on these particular topics. And so, so by giving students, okay, here's a range of questions that you might want to ask, and I'm not going to require that you do any one of these, choose which ones you want to focus on during class time. Um, that can be really beneficial. And then the problems that students don't choose, I will provide the solutions later on. And so they can then look at them 
later on, even if their group didn't choose to do them in class. And so that's, those are two examples of, of how I try to provide students with choice. I'll give a couple of examples. I think, Melissa, you nicely touched on the one space to provide student uh, students' choices in introductory courses, where especially where we might be having a broader subset of the student population than we see in an upper-level majors course. So I have had uh, also things where I um, that were targeted towards um, pre-med students' options on my homework, where um, uh, pre-med students could make those choices to uh, address content that they were interested in. Um, in an upper-level course in uh, thermo and statistical mechanics, I did a, a journal club, and I think the really beautiful thing about uh, thermo and statistical mechanics is it touches so many areas of current research practice. And so um, at that upper level where students are maybe thinking about their next career step, uh, thinking about grad school, that gave uh, students an option to really focus on a subject area in physics that was of interest to them. The other place that we talked, the three of us talked together about providing student choice goes back to this issue of flexibility and deadlines. And one uh, modification that I found particularly helpful in my courses is introducing a late token system. Mm -hmm. And so what I have is a uh, option, basically every student at the beginning of the semester gets two late tokens um, for a 48 hour extension, no questions asked on the homework. And what I found is uh, this is really helpful because what I was finding is that some students were bolder in asking for extensions uh, than others. And I had the sense that this was some of the uh, bolder askers were maybe for more overrepresented groups in, in physics was my, was the experience that I was having. And so by making this option available to all students, I, I think it actually increased the sort of equity with which I was granting extensions um, in my, in my classroom, but also it, uh, takes me sort of out of the position of arbitrary about any particular quest. And so um, it moves me from this space where I'm sort of judging your request to a space where I can support students in whatever um, issue they may be having. So I'll get a panicked email, oh my gosh, I really need an extension. And then I can say, you know, actually this is part of the course and it's in the syllabus on um, page two and you can have this uh, 48 hour extension, no questions asked. Um, and I think for, for some students that's just feels like a huge relief. Um, and so uh, it's a way for students, I think, to feel supported and to address this issue of um, stress and, and mental health um, in a way that addresses a variety of situations. I, I had tried the token system before to, you know, okay success. And then I, I didn't do it this semester here at um, at Plymouth State. And I'm quickly rushing back to it because I think I need to have something, I just need to have something written so that 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 students know it's okay a couple of times with no questions asked. But then also that outside of that, then like then it's like there there still is a policy because I, I definitely had challenges with with many students uh, having lots of late assignments this semester. And uh, this this is I, I know this this varies probably from institution to, to institution, but I definitely found where I'm teaching that there was sort of this this coming back from the everybody gets extensions all the time, which was sort of became the the norm for maybe two years there. And now we're trying to maybe corral back to normal or a new normal or wherever we're going, whatever we're trying to figure out here <laughs> that, you know, trying to, to bring some of that back as well. So I, I feel like, like just being very explicit about those expectations while also providing flexibility um, is, is a great thing. And I think one of the things that I always uh, struggle with, with regards to this question of deadlines, right, is because in a physics class, many concepts build on other concepts. And if we're encouraging students to see homework as practice, right, if you let students get too far behind, then it sort of builds up where they they sort of have missed their practice window for the previous homework and then you're moving on to new concepts and they are not you know are, are not able to keep up necessarily because they haven't had the opportunity to practice on the homework so i i do feel like one of the things i've really started thinking about is for for something like 
problem sets or homeworks, right? I, I do something very similar to, to Kristen. I, anyone for any assignment, there's a 24 hour grace period, right? And then for, they have tokens for a set number of an additional 24 hour period, right? So, um, and, and part of that is I just set when it's due slightly earlier than I would have otherwise, <laughs> right? And so that, that initial 24 hour grace period doesn't really make that much of a difference, right? And then when they need that additional, then they have that additional 24 hour period in terms of, but only a set number of those. But there are other times when I might have students, you know, so for sometimes with regards to like some lab write-ups or some writing assignments that I might have, have students work on, those may not be as critical for building and practicing skills that we're going to use immediately. And so then I might include a longer submission window. And so I say this assignment needs to be submitted, you know, sometime in this window of, you know, five days or something like that. And I tell students, you know, and I, I think part of that is then helping students understand that if I give you a submission window, you should set the submission as that first deadline, you know, as that first day of the submission window, right? And then if life happens, okay, then you have these trailing set of days. And, and for something like a lab write-up where the lab is done and we're not necessarily going to be building on that immediately, having slightly more flexibility um, doesn't have, doesn't lend students to div digging themselves into a hole of getting behind on the concepts. No, that, that's great. It reminds me of a statement I heard, and uh, I can't even remember which education podcast I was listening to now, but it was it was a recent episode I listened to. And um, they were talking about how, you know, the trouble with deadlines sometimes is the arbitrary deadline. So the idea that student practice is building on the concepts that we're working on, you know, those deadlines are to help the students keep up with the course. But in these other cases you're talking about, if we say, nope, there's a fixed deadline for this lab report or a fixed deadline for this writing example, that becomes a little bit more arbitrary. Why are we really having that as fixed? Why can't we have flexibility around that? So that's that's great to hear this example. All right. I'd like to give both of you a chance to share some final thoughts about universal design for learning, the response you've seen from your students and what hopes you have for the future. I think student expectation, I think students and faculty to some extent have had trouble figuring out after sort of being in the depths of COVID how we were going to emerge from COVID, right? And I think students have appreciated the ways in which I have retained some aspects of flexibility. And I think the other thing that students have appreciated is I also am very clear with students when I um, make some of these choices about why I'm making some of these choices. And, and so I think the response has been quite positive. Students have, have been appreciative of both the flexibility and also my reasoning for why I have made some of these choices and the universal design for, for learning framework has, I think, helped me more clearly articulate why I am making the choices I am making. Um, I certainly know that there is much more that I could be doing. Um, and so I think one of the things that I'm, I'm constantly thinking about is, okay, what is the next change I might want to make given all of these different checkpoints that are that are available in the in the framework? Um, so I think it's I've I've been pleased with the changes that I've seen so far. And I also see that there are many more things I can think about, um, which makes staying in the classroom and thinking about future classes exciting. So I recognize I said this at the top, but I I think what's been really helpful for me is the ways that the framework is concrete and helps me to be strategic about how I'm planning a course. And so I sometimes describe myself as, you know, not naturally nimble, right? So it can be hard for me to be reactive um, to student needs. And I, I, so I like that the framework really allows me to be proactive and uh, gives me some concrete ways to think about what I can implement and ways to be um, proactive in supporting the variety of students who are coming into my classroom. In terms of what I'm thinking about 
next, like Melissa said, you always have a new idea for the, the next course you're um, teaching. But within this framework, I would say the things that I'm kind of uh, interested in, both things that came up are for me developing that coaching skill in the context of group work uh, and really doing more in that in that area in my classes. And uh, really also thinking about our intro physics courses and the ways that we're offering choice to the different populations of students that are coming into intro physics. So those are the two, I guess, next things on my list in terms of the UDL framework. So outside of, of course, reading the paper that you've written, where can everyone go to learn more about UDL? What do you think are some of the the best resources? I think the the best resources um, cast is which is that organization. They have a great website, um, and they think about UDL at all different levels, from you know uh, kindergarten all the way up through higher ed. But they have a website that is U, that is UDL on campus, which is focused on higher ed. That has some specific examples, um, but but definitely check out uh, their website. There's also a book um, that Thomas Tobin and Kristen Belling have written called Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone, Universal Design for Learning in Higher Education. And so if you really want to dig in, that's you know, that that goes a lot deeper. And that goes beyond just thinking about individual classrooms to thinking about how you make whole how you design whole institutions mm. toward with a universal design for learning framework. Sounds like a faculty um, book club. Yeah. Sounds yeah. That, that, that is, that is not a, I mean, it's, you've got to have more time. The other thing that I will just highlight, which it's not really a resource, but I think it's a great analogy. Um, and, and I'll have to send you the link, but Shelly Moore um, has a video on YouTube um, that's called Transforming Inclusive Education that provides an analogy between universal design for learning and how you bowl. And mm. it is a, it's just a three minute video and it's a, it's a great analogy that I love. So I will send you the link and you can put it in the show notes but it's fabulous. Oh, perfect. I look forward to seeing that myself. That's so many good resources, Melissa. The one recommendation that I would have would be to go to the CAST website, or you can even Google it, but there is a chart uh, that shows the 31 checkpoints and that shows each of the categories. And I think it's just a wonderful summary and really a helpful tool if you're starting to design a, a course. And so my recommendation would be print out the chart, stick it on your bulletin board and look at it occasionally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Melissa and Kristen, thank you so much for talking with me today. I always feel, after my conversations with these interviews, I always feel buoyed up um, with, with just idea and ideas and, and energy. And the two of you are such thoughtful educators who really just truly care about your students and it really comes through in the work that you're doing and and there's also very concrete things that that we can that we can try and I think that's so helpful for for myself I know and hopefully for my listeners too so thank you so much thanks so much it was great to chat with you yeah I feel really honored to have been invited especially looking at your uh, illustrious guest list so thanks for the invite <laughs> Even though I haven't been able to produce as many episodes of Physics Alive these last few months because of new obligations and new courses that I'm teaching at Plymouth State, it's conversations like I've had today that really inspire me to keep this podcast going. This, this podcast was something I've created because I yearn to hear conversations like this. And to be part of these conversations is, is really a special thing. So it really inspires me to keep finding the time and, and working to keep this podcast going because it's so important for me. And you know, from listeners that have reached out to me, I, I know how important and valuable it is for you to be hearing their voices and to be staying connected to the education community. So thank you, Melissa and Kristen for helping to keep me inspired as all of my other guests do and for uh, bringing this topic of universal design for learning such an important topic uh, even before the pandemic but certainly now 
uh, as we've come through the pandemic and are still working our way out of the pandemic, people, students, faculty, staff are still getting sick with, with COVID and we're missing time and, and we're all left wondering, now what? And that's, that's the big open question right now. And it may take years to answer. And I think UDL has such a strong place uh, as, as we move forward. You can find links to articles and websites and the YouTube video that makes an analogy to bowling in the show notes on your podcast app. Or you can go to the web link for this episode, physicsalive.com slash UDL. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive, now on Mastodon at physicsalive at universodon.com, or leave a comment on the episode page at physicsalive.com slash UDL. If you enjoy the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and a written review. But I think word of mouth is even better. Share this podcast with a friend, with a colleague. Uh, the more teaching resources that we all have to choose from, the better. If your resources permit, I invite you to be a patron of the show. Membership levels start at $2 per month, and your support helps to pay for upkeep such as web host fees, podcast host fees, equipment upgrades, and in the future, hopefully some editing. So if you can help support the show, then please go to patreon.com slash physicsalive. Thanks again for listening in. I think universal design for learning is an especially important topic in the teaching world today. And I hope you are inspired to try some modifications to your courses, whether it's simply adding a supportive syllabus statement or changing your approach to group work. Please join me again for another episode. Until next time, may you ever strive to bring physics alive and be well.